Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn it to Psalm 17. Psalm 17. What is prayer to you? Jonathan Edwards says, prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. Martin Luther says, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. So everybody now at this moment, take a deep breath. Are you breathing? Are you alive? So then let me ask you a question. Is prayer a natural expression of faith in your life? What does your prayer life evidence about your faith? Sadly for many Christians, J.C. Ryle says, there is no duty in religion so neglected as private prayer. Prayerlessness is an epidemic far too pervasive, far too permanent, far too accepted, and far too unaddressed. Prayer for the average Christian is often no more than just a passing thought. So many Christians see prayer as just some religious duty. You go through the motions when you are at church while thinking about whatever else that comes to your mind when you close your eyes during service. Or something you do perhaps only when you really want or need something from God. Prayer for so many in our churches today is hardly communion with God, rarely intimacy with God, barely the spiritual vitality the scriptures and church history describes of faithful men and women of God. So I ask you, what is prayer to you? Answer it honestly. Examine your hearts sincerely. I recently read a tweet which asked a question. If you were to distill the Apostle Paul's singular strength, what would it be? Would it be his tenacity, his intellect, his grasp of and ability to process the culture, his knowledge of the Jewish scriptures, and a well-known theologian rightly answers, Paul's singular strength is his prayer life, and I agree. Brothers and sisters, what does your prayer life testify about the love of God in which you profess to have transformed your life entirely? What does your prayer life witness about the faith of God in which you claim to have altered the course of your eternal destiny? The psalm to which we have before us today is simply introduced to us as a prayer of David. It's the first time in the Psalter the heading of the psalm is introduced in such a way, and as such, the intent of the psalm is very clear. It models for us, and it teaches us how the people of God ought to pray, how we ought to pray, a prayer of David. We're continuing our study through our series, Summer in the Psalms, in which we are looking to study 10 psalms each summer. It'll take us 15 years to cover all 150 psalms. This summer, we're looking at chapters 11 through 20. As you know, I've been encouraging our church to read through the entire book of the psalms, all relatively short chapters. So with 28 weekdays left of summer, you can read about five and a half chapters each day, Monday through Friday, and you'll be able to finish the entire psalms. If you haven't done it, I encourage you to do it. Or if you started reading in June, you can continue to read two to three chapters and you'll be at a good pace to finish by the end of August. For those of you who have been reading it, hope you have been blessed and encouraged. Psalms is such a practical and helpful book of the Bible, isn't it? In so many ways. So I encourage you to share with others, encourage others with what you've been reading, and hopefully others will catch on as well. Psalm 17, as I said, is a model prayer, a prayer of David. Charles Spurgeon says of this psalm, David would not have been a man after God's own heart, if he had not been a man of prayer, 
He was a master in the sacred art of supplication. He flies to prayer in all times of need as a pilot speeds to the harbor in stress of the tempest. So frequent were David's prayers that they could not be all dated and entitled. And hence, this simply bears the author's name and nothing more, a prayer of David. W.S. Plummer, the 19th century Presbyterian preacher, says, This psalm has long been exceedingly precious to the afflicted people of God, and that perhaps no portion of this collection of praises has been more sung by the saints of God for hundreds of years than the various versions of this very psalm. The contents gives it a prominent place in the experience of God's people, and although it is nowhere in the New Testament declared to refer to Christ or the Messiah, Yet there is not in it an expression which might not have been fitly used by Jesus Christ himself when on earth, close quote. And so although a prayer of David, this is a prayer that points us to Christ and fulfilled in Christ for God's people, for you and me today. It is a prayer that reminds us and teaches us of the precious communion we have with God a prayer that is not merely a religious ritual, but a prayer that God will certainly answer. James 5.16 says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power and effectiveness. So if you are here and you want to learn and grow in the blessed privilege of Christian biblical prayer from Psalm 17, I want to share with you three lessons, three lessons of powerful and effective prayer. Here's the outline so you can follow. And these points are a little bit long, so you may have to write it down. Point number one, God hears the prayers of those who cling to His righteousness. From verses 1 through 6, God hears the prayers of those who cling to His righteousness. Verses 1 through 6. Point number two, God protects those who take refuge in His covenant love. Verses 7 through 12, God protects those who take refuge in his covenant love. And point number three, God saves those who hope in a glorious future with him. God saves those who hope in a glorious future with him from verses 13 through 15. Brothers and sisters, I prayed for you this week that this psalm will encourage you and challenge you to grow in your private prayer. I prayed for you this week that the lessons of Psalm 17 will remind you anew of the needful necessity of prayer in your life as a Christian. I pray when the trials of life come your way, and listen, brothers and sisters, no one is immune to the hardships and sufferings of this life. So this word is for you. I hope you understand that. And when it does, do you know how to carry your burdens in prayer to God in order that He will hear your prayers and answer your prayers? I pray this psalm, Psalm 17, will teach you how. If you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We've been praying for you. If you think I'm just saying that lightly, literally, we prayed for you last week at our monthly prayer meeting. We prayed for you yesterday at our early morning prayer. We prayed for those who will be visiting church today, right now, who do not know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, and for those who do not have a church home. We prayed for you. We really did. So know this word is for you. There is a divine purpose there is a divine purpose why you are here this afternoon. We pray you'll hear these words as an invitation from the one true living God. As it says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. So we pray that you would have ears to hear and eyes to see God's truth so that faith in Christ will grow in you. 
Did you know every single Christian in the history of mankind have become a believer this way, in the same way, through hearing God's word? So you being here is the work of God, and I pray that you'll hear him and see Christ today. Amen? Amen. Listen, brothers and sisters, what you hear today, particularly about the good news of Jesus Christ, will be the most important words you will hear this week the best news you will ever hear. The Bible has outlasted throughout the centuries upon centuries of scrutiny and literary criticism. It has withstood burnings and bannings and censures. Yet this book, this Bible, has been the number one bestseller ever, every year for as long as it's been published. Brothers and sisters, look it up. Just Google it. The Bible, the best-selling book in all of history. Here it is. No other book compares. The Bible is the most influential and significant book in all of history. Why? Because these are the very words of God. These are the very words about Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Amen? So without further ado, let's turn to His Word, found on page 454 in the blue Bibles around you. I want to encourage you, please, please, please keep your Bibles open throughout the entire duration of the message and follow along as I read and preach to help you better retain these words. And by the way, if you do not have your own Bibles to read at home, please take one of those blue Bibles around you with our nice little logos in the back as a gift from us to help you grow in studying God's Word. Psalm 17 says this, a prayer of David, hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me. O God, incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him and subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Point number one, God hears the prayers of those who cling to his righteousness. Look with me to verse 1 again. It says this. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. The first observation we can make from this psalm, particularly from verses 1 through 6, is the repetition of the psalmist's appeal to God. In just verse 1 alone, no less than three times, David pleased the Lord. Hear a just cause. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. And Spurgeon says again, and I quote, he who is in the worst case makes the most noise. The troubled heart craves for the year of the great judge. Yet the truth is, 
some professors of faith set such small store, make such small efforts by the mercy seat that God does not hear them for the simple reason they neglect to plead. The psalmist, in contrast, repeatedly pled the Lord, hear me, attend to me, give ear to my prayer, because he was well aware of the great need he was in. David knew that without God's help, he would be in utter ruins. Brothers and sisters, what profound lesson Psalm 17 teaches us right here from verse 1, from the beginning, about the posture we need before God in prayer. The posture of a beggar. The posture of a needy child. The posture of one who knows and understands that God is gracious and benevolent, yet knows that God is not some genie in a bottle who is obligated to attend to our every need. The posture of one who knows that God is the creator of the universe, that he holds the galaxies in his hands, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that history is his story, that he is the beginning and the end, that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. But oftentimes as Christians, we are busy defending our own causes, aren't we? And never going to God, much less pleading God for anything, do we? Well, What does that reveal about who so many professing Christians believe is truly God? Spurgeon says again, our sincerity in prayer has no merit in it any more than the earnestness of a beggar in the street. But at the same time, the Lord has regard to it through through Jesus and will not long refuse his ear to an honest and fervent petitioner. So, brothers and sisters, are your prayers marked by humility, honesty, and fervency. W.S. Plummer says again, acceptable prayers must be fervent. Cold prayers are hypocritical. So, are your prayers hot or cold? Of course, I'm not talking about the temperature in this room. I'm talking about are your prayers fervent or are they cold? Are your prayers acceptable or hypocritical? Now, some may think, I get it, we live in a very independent, self-focused world, and you may think, even as a Christian, well, I don't want to bother God. I'm sure He's busy helping those who are truly in need. And some may actually think, well, I don't want to be a beggar. I'm not a child. That's honestly a bit pathetic. That's honestly a bit beneath me. Well, if you're thinking this way, subconsciously even, dear beloved, may this precious psalm correct your thinking. And may it be a humbling reminder to you. It is in fact you and I who is truly in need of God's help. You are a beggar and a child before our holy and mighty God, needing His providential aid. Amen? So what is your posture before God in prayer? Answer it honestly and sincerely this afternoon. Do you dare think that you and I are above David, Israel's greatest king, A man after God's own heart, a man who defeated Goliath when he was just a shepherd boy, a man who defeated tens of thousands of warring armies, a man who foreshadowed Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Do you think you are above David? Did David's crying out in desperation to God seem pathetic to you, emotional to you, overly dramatic to you? David cried out to God because he had a realistic picture of who he was, a miserable wretched offender in grave danger before a holy, mighty, sovereign creator, Lord, and king of the universe. 
We're going to get to what kind of danger in a bit, but for now, I want you not to miss this important point. Don't exempt yourself from David's troubles because the psalmist's troubles are applicable to you and I, to all believers. God hears the prayers of those who cling to Him, who plead with Him to hear, who denies Him or herself and are not their own saviors who do not trust in their own powers and strengths and gifts because they know that every good and perfect gift comes from above, who lean not on their own understanding, but lean on His everlasting arms. Brothers and sisters, that's the reason why the psalmist comes to God with such boldness and confidence, you see. The psalmist says, hear a just cause. He says, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. At first, it seems contradictory, doesn't it, to what I've been just saying about David's humble posture, but it's actually not. David wasn't saying he was free of sin. He was claiming his innocence in this particular situation. He was saying, I am coming to you, God, in all sincerity. The accusations of my enemies forced upon me are baseless. I did not provoke them. I did not attack them. I did not wrong them in any way. Before you, I am not a hypocrite. I'm not just coming to you for my own gain while I take advantage of others. He is confessing to God, I have been slandered. I've been maligned. I need your help. Lord, hear my just cause. Listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. It does not rise from false lips. I am not lying, was what David was saying. We see in verse 2, David was praying for vindication from God. Literally, David was praying for righteousness. Look at verse 2. From your presence... Let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You see, the psalmist needs God to be his defense attorney. David needed a mediator as he stood before the trial in the courts of his enemies. So David says, David prays, vindicate me. Give me righteousness. In the original translation, the phrase is, let your sentence come forth from your presence. David was saying, you and you alone are my righteous judge. And he knew that justification could only come from God alone. So David says, let your eyes behold the right. David was saying, see in me righteousness that is from you. See in me righteousness that is from you. And again, David's confidence wasn't just his own opinion of himself. It wasn't just arrogance. It was based on God's word. How did he do this? Look at verse 3 through 4. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. David was saying, I have examined my heart according to the words of your scriptures. That's verse 3, right? You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. David had wrestled with God in prayer all night. He had laid his heart bare before God. He had confessed of his sins and his fears and he had petitioned God of his needs. Just as David prays in another psalm, Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And as a result, he says in verse 5, doesn't he? My steps have held fast to your path. My feet have not slipped. The phrase, 
my steps have held fast to your path is actually in the original language another plea to God. Hold up my goings. Hold up my goings. Hold me fast in your ways. Only then, only then my feet will not slip. My brothers and sisters, what mercy of God. What privilege we have to carry everything to God in prayer. That in the trial for our innocence, God hears our just cause according to his righteousness and not according to our deeds and our own merits. That because God himself is our defense attorney and our righteous judge and our sustaining grace and our new mercies every morning, we have been tried, we have been tested, and we will have nothing to incriminate us. Our feet will not slip. We will stand firm. We will stand on solid ground according to his promises. Amen? Dear beloved, so many self-professing Christians have slipped and stumbled. So many so-called followers of Christ have fallen away from the faith. So many nominal Christians, Christians in name only, are deconstructing their faith in the onslaught of cultural and sexual revolution that denies and rejects and mocks our scriptures because they have failed to cling to Christ and his righteousness in prayer. But what mercy and grace you, each of you, have been shown by God that you have been kept thus far that you are sitting in this gathering of the redeemed this afternoon in a hundred degree weather heat in the afternoon along with fellow brothers and sisters all around the globe is evidence that God is keeping you from slipping. Hallelujah. So then, again, let me ask, what is prayer to you? What is prayer to you? Do you have the confidence of the psalmist as he says in verse 6, I call upon you for you will answer me. O God, incline your ear to me here my words. We see in verse 6 that David's plea to God, hear me, upon taking it to God in honest and fervent prayer, upon examination by God's word, has turned now to confident assurance. I call upon you, for you will answer me. The first lesson in powerful and effective prayer is that Christian prayer is not only for the spiritual elite. It's for beggars and children of God like you and me who are aware of our sins, who come to God in sincerity, who wrestle with God's word and examine themselves by God's word and clings confidently to the righteousness of God gifted to us in Christ. Well, let's talk more about how this is possible, which leads us to our next lesson. Second lesson to powerful and effective prayer, point number two, God protects those who take refuge in his covenant love. God protects those who take refuge in his covenant love. A few weeks ago when I preached from Psalm 15, I shared with you a Hebrew poetic form called parallelism. As poetry in the West and America are often structured through rhyme and meter, Hebrew poetry uses parallelism. Well, another form of Hebrew poetry which utilizes structure to emphasize the message of the passage is called chiasm, where the beginning verse and the ending verse mirror each other, then the following verses mirror uh, corresponding verses in order to highlight and give prominence to the central verse or verses, which is what holds the entire poem or the passage together. So A, A, B, B, and the central axis. Here in this passage, the entire psalm is written actually in a chiastic form. Verses 1 and 2 corresponding to verse 15, where the psalmist pleads of innocence and is delivered in innocence. 
verses 3 and 6, which is the description and the outcome of the psalmist's innocence, which contrasts verses 9 through 14, which is the description and outcome of the wicked enemies. And the spotlight of the entire psalm falls on verse 7 and 8, which is the central access of the psalm, the reason behind the psalmist's confidence, the power and effectiveness that undergirds the psalmist's prayers. Look with me to verse 7 and 8 again. Look at verse 7 and 8. It says this. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. The psalmist had prayed in verses 1 through 6, Hear me, attend to me, give ear to me. But he says, don't just listen to me. Now that I have your attention, furthermore, in these verses, David prays, show me. Keep me and hide me. In other words, what David was saying was, prove to me. Prove to me that you are my God by protecting me and sustaining me. David not only appealed to God as his defense and judge in verses 1 through 6, now he appeals to God as the covenant-keeping God. That's what he means when he says, wondrously show your steadfast love. That word steadfast love, it's in its original meaning, hesed, is that famous biblical word known to us which exclusively describes God, Yahweh of the Bible, the faithful God who keeps his covenant, his steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations according to Deuteronomy 7.9. Hesed love. This is the reason why the psalmist could be so bold and so confident as the psalmist has examined his heart in verse 3 by examining self with God's word in verse 4. And as he is held fast to God's truth in verse 5, David recalled how God has been faithful to keep his covenant with God's covenant community in the past. You see, that's why verse 7 is actually an identical reflection of Exodus 15, verses 11 through 13. Write those verses down and look it up later, Exodus 15, 11 through 13, in the Song of Moses, when the Israelites were delivered from the Egyptians from their bondage after crossing the Red Sea. You see, just as Moses praised God for deliverance from the Egyptians for God's wonders and his great love by his right hand, David pleads God to do the same. Not only that, David recalls also the words of Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 and 11, Moses' final song, which says, Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 11, which says, He, God, found him in the desert and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He, God, encircled him. He, God, cared for him. He, God, Yahweh, kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. You see, as David was examining the scriptures and recalling God's words, David was reminded his God is the same God of Moses and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and the God of Abraham. And he knew and believed the same faithful covenant keeping God would be faithful to protect him as well in times of trouble. The commentator says David's ascent to confidence is not merely a testimony to the psalmist's stalwart faith and his ability to transcend his perilous circumstances. It is primarily a testimony to the faith of the covenant community in a covenant-keeping God. Simply, in other words, when you know God's character, who He is, and you know His steadfast love for His people, you can be assured whatever you ask in His name, He will surely do it. Amen? 
Well, how did he do it? How did God answer the psalmist's prayer to wondrously show God's steadfast love? And how can we, living some way over 2,000 years later, see and experience God's Hesed love? 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. How? He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means that Jesus, the Son, became the payment for our sins sentence. Just as David prayed in verse 2, let my vindication come from you, let my sentence come from you, God sent His only Son to satisfy God's wrath for our sin in order that Jesus Christ may be our vindication and our righteousness. Amen? Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear. That God, who is holy, unlike any other creator and sustainer and sovereign ruler, the Alpha and Omega, created us in love. Why? To reveal to us His glory and His steadfast love. And although man and woman rebelled against God and distrusted and disobeyed His word over and over and over and over again, and as a result, we were separated from God, help us to save ourselves from the miserable lot of an unfulfilled life, lacking peace with God, lacking true happiness and satisfaction in this broken, fallen world. That was our state. But God had a plan from the very beginning to redeem a people for Himself to show them the wonders of His great love, to keep us as the apple of His eyes, the central focus of His plan, the redemption of sinful man. And His plan, what was His plan? To send Jesus, who is truly God and truly man, who lived a life of perfect obedience, hence the sinless sacrifice, who died the substitute death. He suffered the punishment we would have suffered in eternal hell fully satisfying the cup of judgment reserved for us. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. God's redemption plan accomplished, done, game over. And then Jesus rose again on the third day, didn't he? Conquering sin, Satan, and death once and for all. Fulfilling the prophecies of the scriptures, proving that he indeed is the promised Messiah. And he invites all He invites all who will call on His name to repent and to believe and to trust in Him in the newness of life and to eternal life when He returns. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, Christians can be assured we can come to God with our prayers boldly and confidently without condemnation, without fear, because in Christ we have been imputed or credited His righteousness as our unrighteousness was nailed with Christ on the cross. This is an invitation no other religion of this world can claim. It is unfathomable that sinful human beings can ever approach a holy God in every other religion. Secularism and atheism straight up denies the existence of God. But Scripture says in Romans 14, 11 through 12, on that day when Jesus returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Friends, Visitors, you can choose to deny or reject God all you want. You can ignore and undermine the testimony of millions of Christians who claim their lives have been transformed completely by coming to know God's steadfast love in Christ. You can gamble your soul, your eternity in rejecting this gracious invitation, but do not be mistaken. You will give an account of your life before God. How you rejected Him as the King and Lord of your life. Scripture says the guilty will not go unpunished. 
Scripture says all have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one, including you. So if you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, by His loving kindness, by His loving kindness, His kindness, the Bible says, leads us to repentance. He is patient with you right now by giving you this invitation. Repent of your sins today. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. Trust in Christ with your whole life and your soul today, this moment. You will not regret it. You will not lose anything worth keeping by trusting and following Christ. Don't leave this place this afternoon without talking to someone about how you can follow Jesus. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Jeremy outside door. Talk to Jacob, our service leader at this door. Or talk to somebody smiling next to you. We are eager. We are happy. We want to. We've been praying for you to come and talk to us about how to follow Jesus. Verses 9 through 12 describes to us who they are who reject God's invitation, who are not welcome in God's covenant community by their ongoing and willful rebellion and rejection of God and His Word. Look at verses 9 through 12. It says this, From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in the ambush. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Man, what a word for those so-called Christians who continue to forsake the gathering and worship in the pandemic. They are scattered. They are stumbling. They are shaken. Notice the enemies of David are not passive, are they? But they are very active. Just like their father, the devil, who seek to steal, kill, and destroy. The wicked do violence. They surround the righteous. They persecute the godly. They close their hearts to pity, which means they are merciless. And they are so arrogant, aren't they? They are so sure that their way is right. Their eyes are set to destroy the godly. Like a lion eager to tear, lurking in the ambush. All those descriptions to explain that the Christian life is no smooth sailing. (laughs) There is no such thing as easy believism. There is no such thing as injury-free, persecution-free, suffering-free, sorrow-free, trouble-free life. That is not the Christian life. Have you noticed how the troubles you face in your daily life always affects your relationship with God? You can be a jerk to your spouse and kids and your friends and your family members and come here to worship God. You can't do that. You can't be in unrepentant sin and worship God freely and joyfully. You can't do that. That's hypocrisy. And God sees right through you. Here is an invitation from Psalm 17 to humility. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Let it be known and let it be reminded to you, brothers and sisters, whom I love and whom God loves. God uses the troubles of this life to drive you to your knees. God uses the troubles of this life to drive you to your knees. You don't have to be in control of it all. He's got it. He is the sovereign Lord. He is in control. All you have to do is cling to his righteousness. Seek refuge in his steadfast love. Third and final lesson in powerful and effective prayer. Point number three, God saves those who hope in a glorious future with him, verses 13 through 15. 
Know this, clinging to Christ's righteousness, seeking refuge in God's covenant love, doesn't mean, however, we will always just sit around enduring hardship and suffering, just barely, oh my goodness, made it throughout the week. When stresses and pressures are pressing in, Christian faith is not some abstract faith. It's not some transcendentalism rising above reality, living in some hokey spiritual reality. Brothers and sisters, what we hope in today will have a final fulfillment, and it will be a glorious end. Amen? What we endure through today will have a purpose. What we cling to Him in faith today will turn to sight we will be with God in glory. It will be the most amazing, awesome thing. Amen? Look at verses 13 through 14. It says this, Arise, O Lord. Confront him and subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord. From the men of the world whose portion is in this life. You will fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. See again. Not only the psalmist prays, hear and show me and keep me and, 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 and hide me. He says, arise, confront and subdue and deliver. Not only rescue me from my enemies, but destroy and crush my enemies, the wicked, by your sword. Let them feel it. Let them experience it. Hallelujah. Because God is the God of justice. Justice will be served upon the evil. No unrepentant rebel, idolater, murderer, rapist, liar, terrorist, hypocrite, sexual and spiritual abuser, they will not be forgotten by God. They will be punished. Justice will be served. Men of the world whose portion is in this life, their stomachs will be filled up with worldly treasures. Their godless children will also be satisfied by their worldliness. They will have the best of this world to the full. Because that is what they want. Because that is all they want. Well, look at the psalmist's words in verse 15. As for me, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Reminds me of 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. It also reminds me of 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. King of kings, Lord of lords, benevolent, gracious, merciful Savior, we will see him as he is. Brothers and sisters, the greatest blessing and privilege of being God's chosen children is that one day we will, on the final day of our resurrection, we who are hidden and found in Christ will surely and fully and clearly be shown God's righteousness and steadfast love in complete, amazing, radiant glory. Revelation 22 verses 4 through 5 says, They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. 
the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever and ever. Brothers and sisters, powerful and effective prayer is grounded in true hope, real hope, not some fake false hope in his glorious salvation. So no matter what troubles come our way, no matter what suffering and sorrows may come our way, our hope in Christ is sure, our hope in Christ is certain, and know this, our hope in Christ is coming soon. So until that day, may we pray and be certain that God hears our prayers who cling to his righteousness. May we be certain that God protects those who take refuge in his steadfast love. And may we hold and hope certain that God saves those who hope in a glorious future with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for the reminder of your word, the promised blessed privilege that we have to carry our sorrows and our troubles to you in prayer. Father, what a certain hope, what a certain salvation we have Yet so many times, because of the troubles of our lives and the circumstances of our lives, we don't turn to you. We turn away from you. But Father, you teach us through Psalm 17, through the life and the words of David who pointed us to Jesus Christ. Father, that this prayer is possible because of your Savior, Christ, whom you have sent to be our substitute on our behalf. So Father, in Christ, may we approach the throne of grace with confidence May we humbly, sincerely, and fervently cry out to you in times of need. May we experience your blessed joy and everlasting love, steadfast love, this day, today, and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.